You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. All right, so if you have a Bible, please turn to John chapter 12. We are taking a little break. Um, we have been in the series called uh, Small Short Series, Who's Jesus? That concluded last week with Easter Sunday. We're going to make those three teachings available for you. So if you have anyone curious about the mission of Christ or who Jesus is or why did he die or what's the resurrection all about, we'll have those for you on our website. But before we get back into Genesis next week, I wanted to, and this is kind of, these are the, the, the sort of sermons I, I, I really live for. I just really want to speak to the church um, this morning and reflect with you on this act of worship that we see happening in, in John 12 and have a, an opportunity to respond to God through this. And so, um, so yeah, I, I just, this is kind of really fun for me. So let me read, let me start in Luke chapter, or sorry, John chapter 11 and then um, verse 17 and then give you a little context and then our text will be Luke, I'm um, sorry, gosh, I keep saying Luke, um, John chapter 12. John chapter 12, 1 through 8 is our text, but I'm going to start in John 11. So John eleven seventeen. 17, if you guys are familiar with uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they're, they're siblings. Um, normally when, uh, when Martha is mentioned, she's always serving, she's always busy, she really loves hospitality, she's buzzing around everywhere, busy. Every time Mary's mentioned, she's always at the feet of Jesus, worshiping Jesus. Every time Lazarus is mentioned, he's um, dead, uh, but uh, Christ <laughs> raises him from the dead. And so, and so this family, Jesus loves this family, this um, uh, Mary, Martha, and, and Lazarus, loves them, spends time with them, l- has long meals with them, just adores them. And Jesus was off ministering and got word that Lazarus fell sick and was about to die. And like, Jesus, come quickly and do something. Um, Lazarus, it says, who you love, which is only a, a word reserved for um, normally his inner circle of disciples. Lazarus, who you love, is sick and is about to die. Come quickly. And Jesus, it says that Jesus delays and he doesn't go right away. And he, the reason why he delays is so that, the, that they would see the glory of God. And then finally he does um, end that, uh, head that way. And in verse 17 it says this. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had, uh, Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. And Mary remained, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, yeah, yeah, I know. He will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. We talked about this last Sunday. That they never, Jews never thought a resurrection would happen in the middle of history. They always thought it would happen at the very end, on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And when Jesus had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. 
When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could, he, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been there. He has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know, I knew that you already, you always hear me, but I said this on the count of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died had died come, had come out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Chapter 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus um, therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with, the, um, with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have always with you, but you do not always have me. That's our text. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I pray that today the aroma of the worship of the living God would fill this church. I pray that redemption would fill this church. I pray that we would look around today and see our brothers and our sisters having been dead, raised to life. Those who have been busy about the wrong things, now redeemed for Christ. Those that that have not served you, serving you. And we would rejoice in the redemption that's found in this church as people are baptized tonight, that we would see those who were lost and now are found and it would bring us joy and it would cause us to worship you. Jesus, I pray that the church today alive would testify that Christ is alive, that you are living, that you are moving, that you are changing lives and that you would change ours in the process. And so today I pray that you would give us this beautiful glimpse inside of your church, the beauty of your church, how you're redeeming and reconciling us and that we would all together worship you, Lord. Do this today as we Look at your word and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today, obviously, I want to talk about worship. Traditionally, on on Sunday mornings, uh, these Sunday mornings all over the world are called worship services or worship gatherings, where people will file into a room like this here at the Swedish American Hall. We do this every week. We file into this room. We sing and we learn and we pray. Essentially, we worship God for a certain period of time. And that period of time is called a worship service or a worship gathering. 
But today what I want to talk about, I want to get back to in our own hearts, and I want to get back to as a church, is this raw form of worship. At, worship at its rawest. Not to cut it down with our culture, not to cut it down with our education or our time limits or our technology. I want to look at worship in its rawest form, in its purest form, before it's processed through all our stuff. Before it's processed through our inhibitions, where when we worship God, we don't really want to, if we see people raising their hands, we're like, Moon, that's not really me. I mean, I really feel like I want to fully worship God, but not by raising my hands. Or maybe you've sensed as you've been coming to church here for the last several months or weeks or maybe years, that, that pull to go, should I go to the, it's kind of weird that people go forward and they kneel on the carpets. I don't, that's not really me. I'm not going to really do that. Before we, 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 we try to cloak all our worship activity with our inhibitions or our attitudes, like I don't really feel like it today. I'm not really in the mood to worship. I'm not really in this happy, clappy mood today. Or our moods or our preferences. This is not really my favorite song, or my favorite sermon, or my favorite day to worship God. Before we cloak it with all this stuff, I want to get back to worship in its purest form. And I think worship in its purest form is a response to who God is. Worship at its purest, at its rawest, is worshiping God as a, as in a response to who he is. So from our text I want to look at today, this morning, the essence of worship, what is the essence, the core of it, the heart of it, the extravagance of worship, how Mary worshiped Jesus with complete extravagance, not holding anything back, not caring who was watching, not caring how shameful it looked at times, and the effect of worship, the effect that her worship had on everyone, and not just everyone, but us even now, here. Like, it lives in, in history, what, what she's done for Jesus. So the effect of her worship, or the effect of our worship. So first, the essence of worship. The essence and the heart of Mary's worship was Jesus. Jesus was the heart of her worship, was the object of her worship. Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, she was always found at the feet of Jesus worshiping. And you know what she saw? This is kind of what I want you to see today too. And I, and I hope to, at the end of the, the, our, our time together, bring us there. But this is what Mary saw. Mary's in this room. Her sister is buzzing around, cleaning, cooking, like she always does. If you remember, the, um, when, if you've ever heard of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, the first time that you, you come across Martha, she's, she's Martha. She's like cooking and cleaning, and she loves serving, but her service was about herself. She has this self-absorbed, she was a self-absorbed worker. You might know someone like this. Maybe you're that person, where you love to work, but your work is all about you, and you making money, and you getting ahead, and people recognizing you for your work. That was Martha, and Martha was even bitter that people didn't work as hard as she worked, she would work hard, and she'd look around like, why aren't these people working as hard as I work? And that one time, she even called out her sister and go, Jesus, I'm here slaving away, making an awesome meal, and Mary's right there at your feet worshiping you. And Jesus quietly, gently corrects her. And so now here in John, what we see is Mary is at the feet of Jesus, but Martha now is working like she always has worked, but differently. Her work is not about her work. It's not about herself anymore. Martha has joy as she works now. 
And Mary, her sister, knowing Martha full well, sees it, no doubt, sees that she's changed, sees that Martha's work has been redeemed. And she looks, and she looks around, and Martha's just like with joy, whisking around the kitchen, bringing out you know, tapas and bringing out all these great, like, great bottles of wine and like loving it and joy. And not like, why, why are you there on the ground? And why are you, but just with joy. And Mary sees that and was like, oh my gosh. And then she looks around and sees her, the disciples. And she knows the disciples, like, who are these kids and these guys in ministry? Like, they're ministering, and they have no, like, really authority to, but Jesus has given them authority. And these, these guys, who were once just all over the place, sinners in their own rights, are now ministering. They all have, they have authority in Jesus' name. They're casting out demons. They're ministering the sick. Here are these guys that, I, we, I, they, I don't know if Mary knew them beforehand, but just knows about them. And now they're ministering with Jesus. And then she sees her brother Lazarus sitting next to Christ, who she buried just a couple days before this. She had come to terms with, I'll never see my brother again. They wrapped him in, and they mummified him pretty much. They stuck him behind a rock. He was there four days dead. If you have the King James Version, it's the best, one of the funniest, awesome verses in the Bible. Like, Jesus, like, roll away the stone, and Martha's like, Lord, he stinketh. That's what it literally says in the King James Bible. For that reason alone, everyone should own a King James Bible. Lord, it's been four days, he stinketh. There's actually this ancient picture of this thing, and Martha's, like, plugging her nose. It's the funniest, it's like a very old, historic, iconic picture of this whole scene, and Mary's like, like, or Martha's like plugging, like, he, he stinketh. Um, Lazarus, just a few days before this, was dead. Dead. Like, they buried him. They had mourned for him. They had hired mourners. She had cried. She had said her goodbye. She's, she was like, he was dead. But now, her brother who was dead is now sitting next to Jesus, enjoying a meal that her sister is making. And then she looks, even in her own soul, there's just this peace that she has as she's sat at the feet of Jesus listening to his teachings now for maybe a couple years. And you know what she draws all together? All of this is because of Jesus. Jesus has called the disciples and given them authority and, and ability to minister. And then Jesus has changed and transformed my sister to where she works now with joy. Her work is redeemed. He has cleansed me and my brother was dead and is alive. Why? Because of Jesus. And she is so overwhelmed with love for Christ, with appreciation for Christ. And what Christ has done, she grabs this very expensive bottle of perfume and she pours it on Jesus' feet. And she undoes her hair and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. She is overwhelmed by the redemption of of Jesus. Jesus did all of this. All of this. This is worship in its purest form. This is worship. Before we get all the stuff that we add to worship, this act, this single act was near a perfect display of raw and pure worship. And this is why. I want to define for you what worship is so you can see how wonderful this display of worship was. Let me define for you what worship is. Now, Defining worship is a very difficult thing. It's like defining love. Love and worship are characterized by intuitive simplicity. I think we all get love. Like we know what love feels like. We've been in love probably with many things. We know what that feels like. It has this intuitive simplicity. And worship shares the same characteristic. There is this simplicity about worship. And when you try to explain it, when you try to define it, it becomes a difficult task because the more you unpack it, the more difficult it becomes, but 
I want to try to define for you worship this morning. Here's a definition of worship. It might seem kind of technical, but I think it's helpful. Worship, this is by D.A. Carson. Worship is the proper response of all moral, sentient beings to God, ascribing all honor and worship to their creator God precisely because he is worthy. Worship, in its purest form, is this. It's responding to who God is. God is here. He is above everything. He is holy, transcendent, perfect. And we worship him because of who he is. That's it. That's the first part of worship. Now, there is a subcategory we'll get to in a second. But that is first and foremost what worship is in its purest form. This is who you are. I'm responding to who you are. That's what it is. And it's responding to who Christ is. He is worthy. Delightfully so, he adds. Now, second part of this is this. This side of the fall, human worship of God properly responds to the redemptive provisions that God has graciously made. Meaning this. We respond to God like this. A lot of times when we, when we sing, we will sing this today. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you because of your love for me. Thank you that you, we, we praise God, we worship God because of his, the redemptive qualities of God. God has redeemed us and therefore we're thankful. So there is a part of that. There's a redemptive response to God. Empowered by the spirit, he goes on, and in line with the stipulations of the new covenant, it manifests itself in all our living, finding its impulse in the gospel, which restores our relationship with our Redeemer God and therefore also with our fellow image bearers, our co-worshippers. Worship in its purest form is a proper response to God, not just because of the redemption that he has provided for humanity. If we're just worshiping God because of the redemption he's given us, it can become very self-focused. We worship God first and foremost because of who he is. Let me give you an example. The angels in heaven are not redeemed. In God's wisdom, God has provided a redeemer for fallen humanity, but not for fallen angels. So angels in heaven do not worship God as a response to redemption, but in response to God's holiness. Does that make sense? So when the angels in heaven worship God, they're not going, thank you that you redeemed us because angels are not redeemed. Only humanity is redeemed. Angels worship God and what we do when we worship is we plug into what's already going on is they're worshiping God because of who he is, his character, and it's displayed. There are several times we get little revelations, little peeks into what's going on in the heavenlies and one of them is Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah gets the heavens roll up a little bit and he gets, the, he gets a little a little vision into what heaven's like, and it says this. He saw above him the throne of God stood seraphim. Each seraphim are angels. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to the other. Listen, the angels are saying to one another. Isn't that awesome? They're like, this is what they're saying to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. He is holy, Holy, holy. This is what they're saying to each other. The whole earth is full of his glory. They are worshiping God because God is other. God is holy. God is transcendent. God, his glory fills the entire earth, the entire universe. God is everywhere, beautiful, majestic, wonderful, and that's why they're worshiping him. Worship in the purest form is worshiping God because he's God. But this side of the fall, as it said in that definition, Human worship of God properly responds to the redemptive provisions that God has graciously made. So there is an aspect of our worship. There should be an aspect of our worship, church, where we respond to God. 
where we respond to who God is. This takes us back to the room in Bethany. This takes us back to that dining room where Mary is at the feet of Jesus, not just because of who he is, not just because that he, he's the one worthy to go to the cross for us, to provide for our salvation. Every commentator says that Mary had this intuitiveness where she knew that Jesus was going to die. No one else really got it, but she got it, and that's why she anointed him for his burial. But she wasn't just worshiping Jesus because what he would do. She was worshiping Jesus because of the redemption that he offered fallen humanity. The, she's been redeemed. Her brother's been redeemed. Her sister's been redeemed. The disciples have been redeemed. All these people are around, and they're redeemed, and she's thanking Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you redeem sinners. Thank you, Jesus, that you bring the dead to life. Thank you that you call people into ministry. You are good. And so she's worshiping with this gratitude, with this love, with this appreciation for the redemption of what Jesus has done. And notice that it's not in a church. They're not in a synagogue. They're not, in, they're not near a temple. This is not before or during or after a sermon. It was during a simple meal that she poured out her love like this, that she worshiped Jesus like this. See, this story of which Jesus said that it would be told wherever the gospel is spread took place not in a church, but in a living room, in a dining room, at a meal. I mean, I want to ask you, do you sit with your friends? Do you sit with your friends all around and look around and and, and you're enjoying a wonderful meal, you're enjoying a great bottle of wine, and you look around and you're overwhelmed by the goodness and the redemption of Jesus? Do you do that? Do you sit around a table and like, oh my gosh, Two years ago, you were dead. And you're alive. Like you were dead in your sin, and everyone we just kind of wrote you off. Or your family wrote you off for something, and you're alive. And you, why are you even in ministry? We have no idea, only Jesus. That's the only reason why you're in ministry. And you're looking around, and you see all of your, your friends redeemed, and you look around, and, and they, they brought out their best bottle of wine, you know, from like Trader Joe's, like $4 wine, the best one they had, and they're pouring it, and you're like, oh, this is so amazing. Praise Christ. Thank you. Do you do that? Or do you just, see, I know you should be doing this. This is how we should be eating. This is what eat up should be like. This is what our meal should be like at community group. This is when we are together where we're alone. We should be eating like this. We should be as redeemed people looking around dinner tables like this. I, I know. I know that after service, oftentimes after third service, people leave here and go out and get drunk. I know that people leave prayer meetings to get drunk. I know that people leave church and go sleep around. I know that. God tells me every, no. He didn't. <laughs> I, but I know this happens. I know it. And I know for some of you, it's sickening to you. You hate it. This is, this is why we get into this very sick cycle. You make food about you. And you make alcohol about you. And you make relationships about you. When there's, where Christ should be in the center of every meal, of every drink, of every relationship. And when Christ is in the center, it reorients everything. And you remember the redemption of Jesus. Jesus has to take his place in our meals. He has to take a pl- his place in our fellowship. Worship, please, please don't think that worship happens in the four walls of this rented hall. It does not. 
Worship should be busting out of here and be making its way into your living rooms, into your dining rooms, into your apartments, into your restaurants. They should be, worship should be taking place everywhere. Look what it says on the screen. We cannot imagine for a second that we have gathered to worship at church if by that we mean we are engaging in something that we have not been engaging in the rest of the week. Let that sit for a second. You cannot think for a second that you're gathering to worship if by that you mean, well, I haven't been doing this at all. Let me go get my hour and a half in of worship. If, If you have a lot of trouble believing that Jesus is God and and that the, that the church and the people of God worshiped him as God. One of the strongest proofs of the claims of Christ as being God, other than the fact that he said it and he rose from the dead, are what the early followers of Jesus, all being Jewish, who believed in one God and one God alone, the early church worshiping themselves Jesus as God. This is why they were killed, they were banished from, they, they, what they saw in Jesus, his death and then his resurrection convinced them that this was indeed God. And then what happened was this. Everything in the Old Testament, every prescription of, of worship, every call to worship, everything found its fulfillment in Jesus. And then they would start to connect the dots. The movement away from the Old Testament patterns of worship and their language in the Old Testament now found its fulfillment in Christ. So Jesus was the high priest. Jesus was the temple. Jesus was like, he all of a sudden adopted all the language of the Old Testament. Old Testament worship was adopted in Jesus, all of it. And they would have hymns. From the very beginning of their church, they would have hymns that Jesus is God above all. That Jesus, who, who was in the form of God, did not consider equality God something to be grasped, made himself nothing. Therefore, God highly exalted him. You have these sort of hymns about Jesus and who he was, how he created everything. And by his word, everything was created. And Jesus holds all things together. They would worship Jesus because of who he is. The reason why this is, this is so important is because where in the Old Testament... They were given places of worship and times of worship, festivals. In the New Testament, all of it was assumed by Jesus and worship became life. And so Paul said in Romans chapter 12, the worship of God is that you're a living sacrifice. That all of your life is now worship. Everything is worship. This is how we should be living. We should not think for a second that this here is worship. Worship. This is a part only if our lives are worship. And second point, the extravagance of worship. These will go a little faster. Promise. Mary took a bottle of this expensive perfume worth 300 denarii, which was the amount probably a a a given male would make in a year. So denarii was about a, a day's worth of wages. 300 denarii was about what someone made in a year. So this girl Mary took a bottle in her hand worth probably thirty to $50,000 of perfume. And she tore open its seal and poured it all over Jesus' feet. $30,000 worth of perfume. If you can even imagine that. Even Judas Iscariot was like, what a waste. I mean, you could have sold that for so much money and done so much good. And, he, and she pours it out on his feet. Her worship was not only costly, but it was lowly. Mary let her hair down. 
Women did not let their hair down in public then. Mary was acting in, with complete abandon, with extravagant abandon. She let her hair down in humility, made his, her way to his feet, poured out this perfume, and took her long hair and began to scrub his feet with her hair. Our worship of God, this, this sort of response to God, must be in humility. We must worship God with humility. Let me try to explain to you what humility in worship looks like by using a very old phrase. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. There's a huge difference there. So humility in singing and praying is not singing and praying about how sucky you are. Okay? It's not like when you go to prayer, God, I'm so horrible. I, I've done this, and I've done that. I'm so wicked. You know what that is? It's just another form of self-centered. It's all about you anyway. You're just talking about you. You're praying about you. Isn't that weird? I'm this, and I'm that, and that's just a twisted, humility in worship is thinking of yourself less and thinking of God more. Be in awe of God. We have, there's this way in which we're, where we enjoy and we admire a moment. It could be a sunrise. It could be something we admire a moment. And then there's this weird thing that happens in our heart where we admire ourselves admiring the moment. You ever done that? We're like looking like, oh, this moment. Oh, me in this moment. I'm going to take a picture of this moment. I'm going to get likes on this moment. We do, we, and I do it all, often as well. Like We enjoy moments like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I can't believe I'm here. And you're like, you, it's just not even about the thing anymore. It's about you watching the thing. We do this with God all the time, all the time. It's about God, then it's about, well, it's about me. It's about this, and, and we, we turn it inward so easily. Where it, In order to have humility and worship, it has to be pushed outward. Guys, for some of us, we have to take this posture. It's this, like, this posture that we have to take where we maybe even come forward and kneel because it's a denial of everything we want to do. We have to lift our hands because it's a denial of everything we want to do. We're like, we just have to sometimes tell our bodies how to respond to God. We have to learn this discipline. We have to be a people that can do this, where we, we are a church that responds with humility to God, not thinking of ourselves more or more humble, but just thinking of ourselves less. So when it comes to corporate worship, the question I think that we should ask ourselves is, are we worshiping Jesus or are we worshiping worship? Guys, if you've come to this church, and you've come to this church because you're like, oh, there's something about just the worship, and we prayed for that. We've prayed. We prayed for a very long time that that would happen. But we don't want you attracted to the songs. We want you attracted to the God in whom we sing about. And if that's not happening, let me first of all apologize that if we got in the way of anything, we've tried to, from the very beginning, not make this about any person, but about God. My prayer for this church since the very, very beginning of the church is that we would strive to delight in God, not in worship per se, but delight in God in whom we worship. And our worship to God would be costly and uninhibited and lowly and humble and not about us and not about our songs or who's playing them, but about Jesus and his worth. Now let me try to apply some of this to you. What does it look like for you to, to bring to God costly worship, like a sacrifice of worship? Some of you guys are like, well, I don't, I don't know if God's like telling me to give, give 30000 I don't really have 30000 So I don't know if, okay, so l- let's just start somewhere. Because I think God will start doing that. Like, this is what I'm sacrificing for God. Like, all that will happen. But let's, let's start here. Hebrews says, 
in chapter 13, let us offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Okay, let me explain this to you. You might not get this, but you might get it as soon as I say, let's pray, amen, and I go, let's sing, and you don't feel like singing. You don't feel like it. You're like, you know what? This is not really my song. This is not my jam. I don't really know the song, and I don't really feel like it right now. I've been through a really difficult week. I'm not the guy. I'm not, gonna, I'm not the like, emotional like, singing guy. Sacrifice of praise. Sacrifice denotes it's a sacrifice. Open your mouth and sing as a sacrifice of praise to God. Like, I don't feel like it. It doesn't make God any less worthy. We sing because of who he is. We sing, and it's a sacrifice sometimes. Like, it's so difficult right now to open my mouth and to sing, but you're, I'm gonna do it. I might not emotionally get there. It's not about that. It's a sacrifice of praise to God. This is where some of us need to start today. Sing and sing loud. Even if you just don't know how to hold a tune. Sing and sing loud. Respond to God as a sacrifice of praise. When you're at home and you wake up, you're like, you know, I don't really, I don't really, want, I don't really feel like praying right now. I don't want to be inauthentic, so I won't pray. I want you just to quote, your, quote this verse to yourself. Hebrews 13 says, sacrifice of praise. And that's what I'll offer to God right now. My emotions might not be there. A sacrifice of praise. God, my emotions don't make you any less worthy of my adoration and love for you. I love you, God. You're good. In all of your ways, even when I don't feel it, I don't sense it, I don't know what's around the corner, you do. I trust in you. Like, this is how we need to start, like, stop. We, we, sometimes we make all this stuff so, so us-centered when it's not about us. Lastly, the effect of worship. John 12, 3, this, the end of verse 3 is probably my favorite part of this whole thing. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Have you ever hugged someone and they have a lot of perfume on and you smell like them for like a couple of hours? Like, how did that get on me? That, that, it was like that. There was so much, there was, she was so extravagant. She wasn't like a little dab will help a little bit. She put out the whole thing. The, she didn't like go half, like here's half, and then I, I tied the other. She went the whole thing out on Jesus. And it was so much. It was, everybody was like, whoa, whoa. And it, and it filled the house, filled their nostrils, filled their clothes. Some commentators even said, Jesus probably kept smelling like this perfume through his crucifixion. It was that extravagant, where even through the agony of the cross, he would smell this. He would smell this offering. This is probably the thing I want most in our church. Is that we would, there would be this scent of Jesus in our church. There would be this beautiful smelling offering to God. When people who don't normally get along from different backgrounds, different races, different, different like some of you are creative, some of you are very, very analytical, and you guys work in different fields, but we all worship Jesus with one voice. And when we do, it brings unity. When we do, it brings one voice. When we do, it's a beautiful aroma to not only God, but San Francisco. The city looks here and goes, what is going on? We love the smell of your church. We don't get it. We don't agree with you, but it smells like unity. A.W. Tozer said in his book, 
the pursuit of God. Have you ever, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meet together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they, were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for a closer relation, for closer fellowship. Tozer's saying, if we all look away from ourselves and look away from, let's be unified and just look to Jesus and worship Christ, we'll be unified. We'll have a heart. We have the same heart. Our hearts will start to like sense what God's doing in the city and all the whole church will go, yes, that's where we need to go. Or that's where we need to give. Or this is how we need to sacrifice. All of us will sense that. We can't get that by going, guys, let's all band together around, you know, like serving the poor. Though that's great. It must be around Jesus. We can't all band together and go like, we're, we're all artists. It won't work. We must band together around Jesus and then he'll tune all of our hearts. That's the, that's the hope. That's the goal. That's the scent I want in this church. There's also this aroma, this, this, this smell of mission in the church that happens when we worship Christ. There's a strange part at the end of this episode where Jesus says, let her alone, the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me, which is a very awkward thing. You're like, whoa, whoa, wait. So Jesus is saying, don't serve the poor. I mean, Jesus was correct in saying that the poor will always have with us. But that, that, does that mean that Jesus doesn't want us to serve the poor? That does not mean that. It would go against everything Jesus did with the poor and for the lowly. He himself being poor, he himself being homeless. What he did to the beggar, to the homeless. It must mean something else, and it does. And this is what it means. It means all service, all mission must start with worship. All of it. As Tim was sharing, the the, the most important thing that we need to get is the joy of God before we do anything. The source of our mission or our work must be worship. We must worship Jesus first. When we see that what, what he's done for us, when we see what he's done, it should drive us to mission. It's vain to expect to do much for Christ when one has no sense of debt to Christ. When we understand what Christ has done for us, his work to us, that is only the, that's the only thing that's going to fuel mission or sustain mission. The last thing is there's this scent of gratitude in the church. This is what struck me this past couple weeks. Tonight when we do baptisms, we're gonna we're gonna look around. This is what I want. This is what I wanted for us. When I read this, I was like, Lord, make this like a prophetic word that you speak over the church. We look around and we see people being baptized and we're like, You are dead and you're alive. And they'll get up there on the microphone tonight and they'll talk about their testimony and how Christ saved them. And they'll walk into the waters of baptism and they'll go under signifying death. And they'll pop back up, hopefully. I'm pretty sure they will. (laughs) Come back up being reborn, cleansed, reborn. And we're gonna cheer and we're gonna go, you were dead and you're alive. And we're gonna look around to people in ministry, people that are serving and going, you have no right to be serving God, but God has called you. And we're looking around to people who are workaholics that have been redeemed and their work isn't about them anymore. It's about Jesus. So like, God has redeemed your work. 
And we're going to look around and see all of this. And we're going to look around and go, who's done all this? Christ is in all this. Jesus has done all of this. He has saved and redeemed and remade us and called us. He's done all of this, and it's beautiful. And it causes us to worship. It causes us to fall at the feet of Christ and say, thank you, Jesus, for your redemption. Thank you that you redeem us, that you redeem sinners. This is what I want to see. This is what I hope to see. But I hope that there would be no, there would be no Judases in here who look around and go, really, you? You should not. You're lying. I know you. There's no way. Or was that really worth that? I mean, why would you give up that for God? That just doesn't seem worth it. Let, let there not be any Judases in here that point out the way people worship. How silly that is when you worship like that. I pray that there would be a, this aroma of life in here. Where we look around and we're like, we've all been redeemed. Let's sing. We've all been redeemed. Let's rejoice. Because Christ is in the middle right now. He's saving people. He's redeeming people. He's calling people to himself. Let's worship. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done. You are good, and you didn't have to do any of it, Lord. You are still just as perfect, sovereign, holy if you did nothing to redeem us, but you did. You saved us. And Lord, I pray that we would worship with a sacrifice of praise, opening our mouths, praising who you are, thanking you for what you've done. We want to focus on you, not on us, but on you, Jesus. And I pray that, that the aroma of thanksgiving and the aroma of life would fill this church and all of us would leave with it on our skin. We'd all smell like we've been in the presence of God. Would you do that? In Jesus' name.